Hello and welcome to the Talking Law podcast with me, Sally Penny, MBE. Uh, this podcast is about law, guidance, policy, um, and the very different areas the law affects our lives. Uh, and the guest I have this week is really most interesting and is Professor Wing. I'm going to ask him to introduce himself formally uh, in case I do it wrong. And so I'll welcome him first of all, Rob Wynn. Professor Wynn, welcome to the Law and Guidance podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so my name's Rob Wynn. I'm a, a haematology consultant now at the Royal Manchester Children's Hospital. I've been in Manchester since 1995 and a consultant since 1998. And prior to that, I was brought up in Liverpool. I went to University of Cambridge and also to the London Hospital Medical College qualifying in 1989 and did junior doctor jobs in London, Ipswich, Newcastle, Edinburgh, Cardiff, and sometime in Toronto. My interest and my work is concerning children with blood diseases, and in particular children with leukemia, uh, undergoing chemotherapy, and children that require bone marrow transplant or blood and marrow transplant, which we do for children whose leukemia hasn't been cured by chemotherapy, and for children with inherited diseases of the blood or bone marrow or the immune system, or also for a variety of genetic diseases which can be corrected by bone marrow transplant. After a transplant, the patient's blood is made by their donor. So if I do a bone marrow transplant for my brother, then after the transplant, I'm exactly the same person but my blood is my brother's blood. And so if I even did things like DNA testing, then my uh, DNA is mine, except for the blood where the DNA is my brother's. And so because the blood changes after transplant, then it will correct inherited diseases of the blood or marrow, because if I've got such a disease and my donor doesn't, then after the transplant, because I've got my donor's immune system and blood, so I am cured of my underlying disease. But much of the work we do is in leukemia and the other cancers where transplant works to cure those conditions as well. And in those situations, it works in two ways. First of all, we give a lot of chemotherapy prior to the transplant to get rid of the blood or bone marrow, and that may get rid of the leukemia or help to get rid of the leukemia because we can use much higher doses than we would ordinarily on our wards. But the main reason that transplant works, and perhaps we'll come to this a little bit later, is that as the donor makes a new immune system in the patient, as the donor bone marrow makes a new immune system, then that immune system rejects the patient's bone marrow and can reject the leukemia. So it's, it's an immunological effect. So the new immune system kills the old bone marrow, but also kills any leukemia or cancer that might be left behind inside it. And that's the main basis for the success of transplanting, curing leukemia where drugs have failed. And I think if we look to our future, and one of the things that uh, that's my job to look after the future of this field and to make sure that all the treatments available in that future are available to children in the north of England, then as we look to that future, I think it's about refining that immunological attack. So we know it works. So we know that the bone marrow, the newly engrafted immune system can reject the cancer. And can we make that work better? Can we 
treat other cancers that we don't currently treat and can we get better results with those that we do and the second way that we're seeing changes is that instead of using a donor so if i've got a blood disease it's usually caused apart from cancer so i'm talking about inherited blood disease there genetically caused and if i go and get a donor then i cure the disease because the donor doesn't have that disease but i have to find a donor and it may be that many children don't have a suitably matched donor yes so one of the way we're moving forward is by taking the patient's own bone marrow and putting the gene in and then putting the patient's genetically modified bone marrow back into their into their own body and that's um that's safer it means that we don't have to find a donor and that for some children we struggle to find donors especially children um that are non-white especially children from sub-saharan africa who've got an arabic heritage or perhaps a mixed race heritage because to find a tissue type match requires uh, testing a lot of people if there isn't a sibling donor readily available so i think we've learned a lot and my during my career medicine has completely changed and transplantation has completely changed from being an imprecise and relatively toxic treatment to a much more refined uh, and much more effective treatment and i think the next years are about continuing that journey working out how the immune system kills cancer cells so that we can do it more safely more effectively and for more cancers and use it for where drugs have failed but also getting a bit better at gene therapy so that we can correct more diseases in that way and as i say it's very important to me working in the north of england that yeah. these treatments are available here for children and families here and the people don't have to travel elsewhere yeah well first of all that's a very comprehensive and thorough explanation of what you do at Royal Man's Children's um, Unit. And I know people can follow you on Twitter afterwards and your, your work and your unit. But I, I wonder if I can ask you about law. What laws govern your work? Because suddenly, you know, we've been in COVID for over 15 months. So listeners um, to this program will be very aware of regulations and trials and so on and so forth. And vaccine hesitancy, for example, one of the reasons for uh, people's hesitancy, not not that I have one, it is that it hasn't been trialled properly or has not gone through the appropriate ethical board, has been signed off too quickly, so on and so forth. So I wonder in your work, what laws or regulations or policies govern your treatment? Uh, and is there any where really you're trying to save the lives of children? Do you tend to have a free reign or are there still restrictions? on what you can do so that's a very good question and yes we are extensively governed and regulated both within the clinical sphere and in the trial sphere i think at the heart of everything here and i and in my work and when i see problems in medicine problems between problems uh, between families uh, and doctors or between society and doctors then i think uh, that is because trust has broken down. Um, so I think regulations and policies and, and the like are very important. And of course, we will obey by laws and policies. But trust is at the heart of my everyday communication with families. And what trust 
and where I see problems is mainly because trust has broken down. And that usually is because something wrong has happened uh, and because or because um, uh, not enough information has been given. And so in my day to day work, which is with very sick children and with lots of serious diseases and life threatening diseases that we cannot always cure, what goes to the heart of my clinical practice is trust which is means seeing people regularly, talking to people openly, transparently, and completely about the problems that their child faces. And that includes that we cannot always be successful in our treatments. And so when we, um, and, um, and making sure that that, tr that communication is updated and is always honest and transparent, and we very rarely get into problems, including legal problems, uh, litigation, etc., with families on our unit, even though we're looking after the very sickest children in the hospital. Uh, so I think that's the first thing I'd like to say. There are issues around consent. So we're, I'm dealing with children. And so one of the most applicable laws and the like that we're discussing is around consent. And um, we have to ensure that the family and um, children where of appropriate age are consented, which means we're giving information, complete information, not just about the treatment that we're giving, but about alternative treatments. And so when we come to discuss, for example, clinical trials, and we talk about risk of treatment, or we talk about risk of transplant, risk of chemotherapy, risk of this newly trialing drug. What is important is that we put that risk in its context, that there is a risk of not treating as well as the risk of treating. Although I might have a, a relatively new or maybe perhaps slightly toxic treatment for children with leukemia, then that carries its risks, but they must be set against the risks of no treatment. And actually, these are very straightforward concepts on a personal level, and all families will understand. So if there's a risk of the procedure and the risk of the treatment, then there is also a risk of not doing that. So if I look at maybe a child that's come, arrived with us over the weekend, so she's had a transplant already, she's relapsed from that transplant, the leukemia's come back. And so that family are very... Uh, familiar with failing treatment and that, that the leukemia that that child has will lead to death unless we do something different. And then to do something different where we use the immune system against cancer may carry a different set of risks, but we must put that different set of risks against the risk of the leukemia. And the trials uh, regulatory framework will make those conversations around risk explicit and formalized. So if I'm doing a trial for a treatment, so if I've got a new treatment, a new drug or a new immune therapy or a new way of doing transplant, or perhaps a new gene therapy treatment, then uh, there will be a rationale for it. There will be a reason that I'm doing it, the reason that we've come to consider this as a treatment. And that's where we set against the risks of the underlying process. So if I've got a genetic disease of the blood, what, what treatments are available for that? What current treatments, how well do children do with that? And if the answers are that children aren't doing very well or it doesn't work very well and the children are still dying, then it is right for us to develop and look at new treatments. But the trial process is about doing that in a stage so that we first of all will, uh, in, a very, in a regulated fashion, set up a trial where we might look at safety aspects first. So we're doing a new treatment, but we'll look at safety aspects and there'll be endpoints 
because the irony of some of my work is that uh, uh, for desperate families, they would want us to cut through all that red tape. And I find that as much as, I call it red tape, it's actually very important. It's very important to me, not in a defensive way, but also in a, but in a scientific way that we do things at the right speed. We ask the right questions. And when we're developing a treatment, we look at its safety aspects first, and then we look at how well it works. And that means treating small numbers of patients first, pausing to look at our results, and then treating more patients later. Again, where we can see in a more, in with a larger patient number, how well those kids are doing. And that's really what the trial framework is about, but it is built on the same premise as clinical medicine. How well are our current treatments doing? What is the risk of our current, what is the risk of disease against the risk of the, against the risk of the treatment? And if the risk of the disease is very high, then it is right that we take more risk with our treatment and it is right that we develop new treatments in a regulated trial structure. And I think that's the way I survive every day in research medicine, is making sure that what I'm doing is balanced proportionately against the risk of the disease. So I think some of the treatments that I do with leukemia, where we're, we've currently got a trial opened in Manchester where we're using cord blood transplant of leukemia, but we're, we're using mismatched cord blood and we're stimulating the immune system. So if you remember what I said in the beginning, which is the, the way transplant works to cure kids with leukemia, is it's the immune system of the donor that rejects the cancer. And so in these very high-risk kids who failed transplants before and for whom there are no other treatment options, then we're doing a trial where we not only put in a new immune system with a transplant, but we use a mismatch so that there is a difference between the patient and the donor, so that the donor immune system can see the cancer as different, but we then also stimulate the immune system. That's, so we take more risk, stimulating the immune system carries some risk, but we take more risk because the kids have failed all other options. And it's right to do that in a regulated way. Once we've consented families, and once we've got the trial set up in a way where we can formally look at outcomes and we can formally analyze those outcomes and publish those outcomes, rather than patients coming to us who are desperate and us doing treatments without properly in a poorly regulated environment and without a proper analysis of the results. So I think that, that that's the trial structure that's the the law around trials there is some uh, the other place where we come up against laws around the cells that we use so we're using cells from donors some of our donors are small children um, and so we have to make sure that we're looking after the interests of the donor as well as the patient yeah. So there is a regulatory framework called the Human Tissue Authority there is a and uh, where we have to formally demonstrate that the interests of the donor are also paramount so that we're not taking a risk with one child in order to look after the other and so although much of my work and the work of the team that I'm in is regulated and inspected and transparent actually at the heart of what we're doing is we are uh, looking after children who are sick and balancing the risks of treatment including research treatment, against the risks of their disease. And I think it's easier to go home in the evening when you've done that and that you've not done a 
poorly investigated treatment for a child with a mild disease. And I guess these are the similar sort of things that are coming around with COVID and should people be vaccinated or, or what. But again, I think at the heart of it is communication and, and proper scientific communication about what the data show so that decisions can be made and what is in the interests of the individual within that. So if we look at COVID and vaccinating children, yeah. so although children can carry the virus, there are very few deaths in children. And so is it right to vaccinate children against a virus that isn't affecting them as much? And although I'm not an expert in the field, this is where decisions will be made. Again, balancing risks. What is the risk of the vaccine? What is the risk to the individual? before you start to look at population benefits. So I think, uh, I think there's a very close relationship between science and what is right in, in these situations. Yes, well, it's interesting and I'm glad you've covered it there because certainly the concepts of proportionality, reasonableness, risk, they're, they're all concepts I use every day, you know, in my practice and lots of lawyers will be very familiar with. So, it, so it's good to know that. Um, I wanted to move on a little bit and ask you about the unit where you work and because I think you've got about 10 beds split over. Have you got six and three? Yeah, um, we've got seven and four. So you've got 11 beds and um, the, rate, the range of them, well, there are other areas and other beds you can use. But I want to talk about sort of the north-south divide and I'm conscious of I think Mormont's uh, recent research showing the mortality rate between the north and i think it was Mormont. i've read so many uh, reports on on the um life expectancy between the north and the south um, but also the future and the opportunities available there and we are all very aware of great ormond street based in london but a lot of the work you're doing here in the north of england in manchester um, is actually has a national reach and an international reach beyond your 11 beds, if I may say so. So I just wonder, can you tell us the, the difference? Because it, to me, and when I read the funding um, policies, the South seems to be better funded than the North in the main. Is that true or have I got my research um, wrong? Uh, and they seem to just have, you know, not just the funding, more money, but more resources. But how does your work cope with that um given the national reach that you've got and the international reputation of your unit that's a very, a very good questions obviously know the team of great industry very well so um uh, and they're very close and trusted colleagues but what is um what is important to me is that what we what treatments are available are available reasonably locally, including in Manchester for children in the north of England. It is clear to me that we struggle to provide the infrastructure for that care. I think we have uh, the, the doctors, the nurses, the teams that can deliver the care, but the infrastructure is difficult to deliver. And if you don't have the infrastructure, then the quality of the care and the ability to provide that care is diminished. And by infrastructure, I mean, beds and support staff and enough doctors and enough nurses and there is a very clear difference in, dif in, in between Manchester and other parts of the UK in, in, in terms of those supports and I think um, those figures are well known in terms of junior doctors per patient 
consultant numbers per patient, but they do make a difference in the ability to provide quality assured care. And that's what is needed for, uh, for a parent bringing their children to us. Uh, the, the care is up to date, is modern, is, is evidence-based, is governance and quality assured. So they must know that the results of the uh, treatments that are given are as good with my team as they are with any other team. And I can share those data. Um, but actually in order to deliver that, it isn't, it isn't a simple matter. It does require infrastructure and that infrastructure requires funding. And as we move to research, that is only more evidence. So my priority looking forward is that the children coming to our unit manage to get what I just described as quality assured care, evidence-based, good results, as good as anywhere. I would like to ensure that they get uh, the very latest treatments that are available. But if I look at the unit, um, so I've run the transplant unit for 20 years plus in Manchester. It has gone from being a small regional unit to a, a larger super regional unit taking children from elsewhere in the UK and actually internationally uh, taking kids. And why is it grown? It's grown because we, we can do more. And specifically, the growth has been in the area of non-malignant disease. So we are transplanting more children who do not have cancer. And when we look at transplant, I talked about it balancing risks. What is the risk of the disease against what is the risk of the transplant? Yeah. Now, if over the years we've got much better at transplant, the results are much better because of better donors, better support care, better understanding of the process. And that means the risk of the transplant has gone down. And if we only transplant people where the risk of the transplant is less than the risk of the disease, because the risk of the transplant comes down, it means we are transplanting children with diseases that we didn't use to transplant. So that's the first area where we've got growth in numbers. Yeah. Secondly, um, we've got better at the immune treatments of cancer, so using cells to treat cancer. And actually, we've opened in Manchester a treatment called CAR T-cell therapy, where we take the patient's own immune cells, so their own cells of their own immune system, we put in a gene, and that gene changes the way that immune system cell works so that it attacks the leukemia. That's great. And these, these advances are fantastic, and we see children that have failed all other treatments that are cured with this gene's therapy, immune system therapy called CAR T cell. But there's lots of those kids around and they quite rightly need that quality assured care, which means they need a bed, they need a bed in an expert unit and they need expert nursing and medical support. But it means that we have more kids, more kids because we're transplanting more, more kids because we've got this T cell gene therapy called CAR. And now I talked earlier that we're using stem cell gene therapy. So instead of having to go to find a donor for someone, I've, we've got several first in the world stem cell gene therapies open in my program here in Manchester, where we put in the gene instead of having to go to find a donor. So that's safer, it's better. But again, this is fancy medicine. It needs to be done in a regulated environment, a quality assured environment. And that is about infrastructure. It's not about ideas. It's not about manufacturing. It's not about uh, fancy science. We can do that. But what we do need to have is a quality assured infrastructure where this treatment can be given. And so if I look, 
we're probably doing three times as many transplants as we were 15 years ago in this program. Plus we're doing this CAR T cell gene therapy and stem cell gene therapy. And actually we're opening trials. I mentioned a trial about cord blood transplant where we stimulate the immune system in children with certain types of leukemia. So to push those frontiers, to push those boundaries requires an infrastructure as well as the ideas and as well as the medicine. So that all the time we can operate in an environment of trust where I can say and uh, we can give information to families we can um, about the disease that their child has got, about the treatments that we have available, the different treatments we have available and what the risks of each one are. And we can only operate in such an environment and to be, tr and to be truthful, trustworthy, honest if we have the infrastructure around us. And I am actually concerned about the, um, some aspects of, the, uh, of our ability to continue to provide that here. I don't want to see that we have to delay treatments where delaying uh, impairs outcome. I don't want to be worrying every night when, or waking from sleep every night wondering whether I can get this child in. Uh, because the, the ward is full. I don't want to be, have to be moving children out of hospital early or elsewhere. And I think at some point that we begin to worry whether we can offer those treatments here. And that is my uh, major concern. It's not one that I've been quiet about, it's one. And, um, and sometimes, uh, as you know, Sally, we use charities to support yeah. our work. And I look at I, well, I know from the 1980s and the 1990s that when the bone marrow transplant unit was first built in Manchester, it was built by the by charity, by uh, but not by the National Health Service, but by the concerted efforts of a gentleman called Peter Bramall, who set up the bone marrow fund, and he actually raised with his team of volunteers. He actually raised the money to build the old, the bone marrow transplant unit that was originally in the Children's Hospital at Pendlebury. Mm -hmm. And that infrastructure is what was largely translated here to the new Children's Hospital. And I, I actually was speaking to Peter the other day that we may actually be in a not dissimilar position now, which is that we are we have outgrown the facilities that we have. And his motivation was the death of his daughter from a disease that was transplantable. So his daughter had a, an illness that these days we would offer an exceptionally good prognosis. And so what is important for listeners here is that the reason to go on is that our results are much, much, much better. So his reason for establishing the bone marrow transplant unit in the 1990s was that there was no such facility. Actually, children with that disease, I would regard as, you know, almost all those children with the disease that his daughter had, are alive and well and cured of their disease after a standard transplant. And what I, and that, so that his work has brought that treatment to the children of Manchester. And I think that some of the kids that are getting the more experimental treatments, the gene therapy treatments, the gene therapy of cancer treatments, the cord blood transplant that I've talked about, then I think in 20 years time that those kids may have the treatments that we're offering those kids may be becoming absolutely standard of care 
just as the, the kids that uh, the, the disease that his daughter had. I'm very lucky that in my day-to-day -day work we can offer treatments that actually cure children and not, I mean, there may not be big numbers. We may transplant 60 kids a year. We may have gene therapy for a further 15 to 20. So the numbers are small, but those children have all got life-threatening diseases who would not be alive without bone marrow transplantation. And uh, I hope that we can continue this journey of uh, understanding the process of offering treatments to more kids and getting more kids better in the way that we do. Of course, in a highly regulated uh, environment where, where the conversations are all around what is right for children and uh, sharing information and around consent. Yes. Well, I've looked because I'm coming to the question about how any of these listeners can help because many listeners will know that I've written several books and donated um, uh, money from sale of those books and various charitable organizations to um, your unit because I have personal experience with your unit uh, with my family. So I've seen that Friends of Rosie have been one of the charities set up or foundations which have been uh, helping the unit in addition to Peter's fund and a whole other, uh, other charities. So I just wonder how can people help your unit or your work firstly funding but secondly or well, you can say in a moment but i'm thinking also being donors uh, i would think or volunteer because i know you work with anthony nolan and the african caribbean trust because as you said and alluded to finding donors from uh, mixed heritage backgrounds is very hard as was in, my, in the case of my own case so what what can people do somebody's listening to this and i've thought Gosh, the law is very interesting in this area, but the personal work is also interesting and I'd like to help or be involved. Are there pragmatic ways that they can assist in your work? So thank you for all the work you've done in supporting us. Um, the, uh, it's always nice, you know, first of all, it's important for us and for my team to know how well the children that we've transplanted are in their later life. That's what we do our work for. The children are often very sick when they're in the hospital and you'll know that more than anybody else. Yeah. And with um, the right supportive care and the right infrastructure and the right medicine and the right nurses, we can offer those children a future and a dramatically normal future. And um, so it, that's the first thing. It's important to the team that's working in the hospital always to, uh, well, it's always nice to know how well the kids are doing afterwards. In terms of fundraising, then we are not uh, hugely well supported and endowed, um, like for example, Great Ormond Street might be. We, uh, we have a charity uh, through the hospital, of course, um, and that makes some contributions, but the work of individual donors makes an enormous difference to the work of my team, either to the quality of life of the kids when they're in hospital, but also to our research work, our current cord blood, trial is largely funded after external peer review uh, to demonstrate its, its integrity, but it's largely funded locally, but actually by Peter Bramble's team where they built the hospital. They've put some money actually into the infrastructure of the research. And um, that's very important for us to be able to, to do that and support our work, both at the, bringing better treatments to kids, but also educating doctors for the future and and, uh, and the like. Beyond that, yes, there is a national and there is a political discussion to be had. Some of that will be around the Anthony Nolan and 
undoubtedly um, the, the more donors of um, mixed ethnicity, mixed race that come forward, the better chance we do for having donors. The outcomes of transplantation are better when you have a well-matched donor, especially in non-malignant disease. And if they're better for having a well-matched donor, that means that in many cases, or not a small number of cases anyway, we are, we are not doing transplantation because we do not have a donor. So remember what I'm saying is for each, this is a very personalized medicine, for each child in front of us, we balance the risk of the transplant with the, the risk of the disease. And if the risk of the transplant goes up because we do not have a matched donor, there will be some children where we do not judge we should take that risk for their disease. So where they might benefit from transplant, we don't do the transplant because the disease, uh, because of the risk of the transplant. You know, this is a risk-based decision. It's individualized, it's communicated. Everyone is involved in that, including the family and the child, if the child is of an age to understand. So I think having better matched donors which also means having patients from the right across the gamut of, you know, our multi-ethnic society, uh, that we should take donors from the, across that society because the children that we need to treat are from across that society. So I think that is important. And there are conversations for all of us to have about how we should spend our money in the NHS and uh, not just how to spend it within the NHS, but how much to give to the NHS in uh, contrast to other things. And of course, you're only listening to me. I'm a bone marrow transplant consultant, but I, I think some of my colleagues would say I'm in a relatively privileged position, which is that I am in a, in a service that's relatively well funded. So I think there are lots of conversations I have about how to fund uh, healthcare. Healthcare costs are going up. There's many more developments and how to fund it equitably across the service, but across the nation as well. And we talked a little bit before about North, South and things like that. And those are questions that are beyond me and you talking now, but are still very important questions. Yeah, yeah, they are, they are. Um, just a quick question um, about, you know, risk and the chances of success and so on. What do you think about this idea of people wanting to have, I think that they call model babies, where you manipulate the gene so that the unborn child can never get a blood disease or uh, you know, a tumor or whatever, which will lead to a malignancy or a, or a cancer. Do you think we'll ever get to a stage where you will have these, I, I think they're called model babies, which are quite controversial. So people want to have the right to be able to say, uh, I, I suppose it's a little like children who might have Downs uh, and the option that's often given to parents, for example, um, to decide if they want to have that child knowing that or another course of action. Now, I have my own personal views about that, but do you think we, we would ever, given how far gene therapy has gone and has come and is involving? I mean, I read a paper the other day, which I, I think was published um, by your unit, which was just talking about the extents of the stem cell uh, work that you're doing. Do, do you think we'll ever end up in that um, scenario? So, very good question, Sally. So, first of all, the gene therapy we do is to replace or to put in a healthy copy of an already defective gene. So, we are treating children with genetic disease uh, or inherited disease. And we all have, uh, all of us have uh, 
faults in our genes and it's just bad luck that these kids have got one that's causing disease. So I think to that sense, no one, that we're all imperfect um, and we are, and we're balancing risks. So I think when we come to designer babies or whatever, then there will be risks of genetic manipulation of that baby, knowing the whole genome. It sounds, it sounds brave new world to me and a long way from being reality and also probably something that we wouldn't want. I, I think when I listen to the question, Sally, and about Down syndrome, then um, I think information is important and treating people as grown-ups and uh, giving people information. And I think Down syndrome is a very good example. I look after a lot of kids with Down syndrome because they get particular blood problems. And these are delightful, beautiful, happy children very often. Yeah. I, I, I am concerned about information that is given that might lead to termination or judgments about quality of life where that information is incomplete. And um, I think that that is incumbent on all of us in the medical profession to make sure that we get that right, that we don't assume that one way of living is the only way of living. And, if the, and so correcting the genes so we have a designer baby that suits our our thoughts, but actually celebrating and valuing all of us, the diversity of life, which includes sometimes that our genes are different and that, um, and that there is a gray area between genes being different and disease and, um, you know, genes that cause disease in later life, uh, you know, I, or, or contribute to the disease in later life. I'm not sure that you'd want to be doing fancy science to get, get rid of those. So I think, I think it's a, a very important that we all have a, uh, a say in that as, as, as members of society. But I think, uh, speaking as a scientist or a, a medical scientist, I think the information that we give is very important there. And sometimes, actually, you know, we don't have all the information. And so we shouldn't make a judgment when we uh, proper judgments mm -hmm. until we have all that information. But I think Brave New World and Designer Babies are a little a little way off but in that conversation we shouldn't as a society be nervous about the sort of gene therapy that we're offering um, where we are correcting genes to correct disease and it's a highly regulated and appropriately regulated medical science or we're putting in genes so that we can redirect the immune system and this is a long way from altering the genome or the inherited structure of the rest of, of all of our bodies and I think we can be reassured uh, all of your listeners can be reassured that we're not in any way heading down that route at the moment um, it's, it's part of anything else it's scientifically impossible but also it's not the intent at the moment and I think the more we talk to each other the more we share science the more we share information and the more we listen to each other then we can um, come to these judgments and these uh, decisions together as a society because it does affect us all. Yes, yes, it does. It does. Thank you, Rob. Um, I, I, well, as I was researching for this interview, uh, one of the things I noticed was um, the kind of skills required to be a, a doctor. And those who've listened to this podcast will know that I didn't take my place to read medicine. Um, my my siblings would say probably rightly so. I, I notice as a leader in your field, there are several skills required 
uh, above all, really, I'm thinking about empathy and also negotiation because your work takes you to working with different departments, intensive care, the interventionist, to endocrine, where you're dealing with cortisol and steroids, immunologists, nephrologists, cardiologists, probably, respiratory, a whole range of other specialists. Uh, And I just wonder, is negotiation really important in dealing with other specialisms? Because it seems to me that actually a bit of teamwork can be required in an area of your own which is so specialist. Have you found that? That's, uh, yes, very important. Um, So when our medical students join us or our young doctors, then one of the things that... um, So I I will tell them that they will see some good pediatrics, good pediatric medicine. They will see some good science, but they will also see, and the word we use is multidisciplinary team working. So, and you've, you've picked up on exactly there. So it's, it's not, that means doctor to nurse, to physiotherapist, to radiographer. Uh, So across the team, not all medicine, but also between doctors and between their teams. So uh, within our institution, uh, intensive care, spiritual medicine, whatever, but also across institutions. So I will know one of the pleasures of my job is that I actually know the people that run the bone marrow transplant units, not just in the UK, but in most other big world centers. Um, and I think that's right for the children of uh, Manchester is that we do know these people um, across the world within the UK, but also within our own institution, different doctors and uh, the other members of our team. And that actually is a real pleasure. It's really important that we get communication right. And it must be founded in a respect for what the other person brings to the team. So within my team, the social workers, the teachers, the psychologists that are in our MDTs, often it'll be the teacher or the, the, the social worker that will have a nuance of knowledge about that family that I don't know that affects how we look after them on the ward. You know, we're all in all the kids that we're seeing are embedded in the wider society, and uh, and we've got a sort of mini society in the hospital uh, of all the people looking after them. But actually, where they've come from is also very important because what we hope is that we're returning them from our team working back to the team in which they uh, will function, and we hope free of disease and free of complication. Uh, but some kids will need to to keep coming back. So I think um, communication is important. Uh, respect for those other people is important from, you know, from the manager of the hospital all across the piece to everyone who's working because I talked about infrastructure before and um, ideas and ability and uh, fancy genes and manufacturing, they can only be done if the infrastructure of the hospital is yeah. correct and that infrastructure very significantly includes its staffing and the the breadth of staffing. And um, it's a fabulous place to work, the Children's Hospital in Manchester, because of the expertise that it has across the entire piece. And to get kids through, and Sally, you'll know, better than anyone, is not just about the bone marrow transplant unit and the haematology team, but will include so many others. Yes. And of course, you know, in the team, uh, we've been clapping the NHS, haven't we? Um, but actually, the people that ought to be clapped 
uh, are, the, are the people who were nurses who are not clocking off because it's nine o'clock or an end of a shift. Uh, and in your unit, you know, they stay there until the children are okay. They're not being paid anything. Uh, and to the health workers and so on, who really, we sometimes forget, I think, um, about their additional contribution. So your team really is a team. Rob, I want to ask you about well-being. Your profession, as well as mine, you're a professor of that unit. I've already said you're a leader of it. Is that it's subject to long hours, uh, and if I may say so, burnout uh, at both ends. And I don't think we're particularly good at looking after ourselves. And in your case, you're dealing with poorly children, and you're dealing with death and mortality. Um, and so I was trying to work out what you do for your well-being. Maybe you can share it. I know you're a huge Liverpool football fan. Uh, no criticism there. Uh, people can follow you and see you on Twitter. Uh, and a huge, um, you know, uh, cyclist. And, you know, you've got children of your own, married. But um, what do you do for well-being? And what can you do that's better? Because you do spend a lot of time at the hospital. Uh, and balance is important, isn't it, in order to carry on doing the important work, um, particularly for the future? Yeah, thanks a lot. That is a very important question. So I think it's important for me to start by answering. I'm probably uh, one of the oldest bone marrow transplant consultants in the hospital and one of the oldest pediatricians in the hospital. And I'm only in my uh, mid-50s. Uh, and I think that that is telling exactly that story of burnout, the the uh, there is pressure to the work uh, as to all work um, and that we all need to look after ourselves and some of that comes to infrastructure so support so you're not on your own that you've built a team around you in terms of day-to-day -day work in the hospital then I do cycle and I when I'm cycling home I put the patients in my mind as I'm riding along and try to line them up in order of whom I'm most worried about and I think first of all it's about that business of balancing risks and that if there's a child that's sick in the hospital and maybe sick because they've got the treatment that I've given, um, then it's about that we've done the right thing. Things don't always work out, but, but we've done the right thing. We've taken the right decision. And I think that that risk management is something about sharing risk. And I think for me, when I'm making a decision about a child and I try to share the decision and therefore the risk, with the, the wider team, but also with the family. Life isn't fair. No one wants to have a child with leukemia and no one wants to have a child with leukemia where treatment has failed and they need a bone marrow transplant. But that is actually the reality of what we are doing. We are working in that area of medicine where children's lives are gravely threatened. And some of our treatments carry some toxicity, but we take that those decisions and those risks in order to try to overcome the risk to the disease and this so it's about balancing risk it's about sharing risks and about gaining trust and trust means giving communication giving giving information communicating effectively um, with families but i think a little bit of it is a, a post-traumatic stress type disorder where it continues yeah. so for many many years we give what can be difficult information to families at the most difficult times of their lives. And I think it does, those things do take a burden on individuals. And I think that's why there aren't many bone marrow transplant consultants older than me in pediatrics across the country. And, um, and I think that uh, we shouldn't underestimate the burden that that's put on those individuals 
and some of support is a bad infrastructure. And when I talked about Manchester having very few consultants, that means that burden is the greater on those individuals. And of course, it becomes slightly self-fulfilling. Um, people who are under more pressure because there's a smaller team might leave earlier and the like. But yes, looking after yourself outside of work is important. I think for me, yes, cycling. Um, um, football, Liverpool, I'm not sure that's always makes for a less stressful one. Um, <laughs> not <but> this season. <laughs> we've had a few good re- years recently. And of course, the importance of one's own family and um, you know, watching my own kids grow up, leave home, uh, only one in medicine, two away from medicine, one in law, excellent, yeah. and uh, one in science, and um, enjoying them and it, and trying to embed ones, you know, in the more the rhythms of life, the seasons, the birds, the because these things will always go on around the, the daily individual pressures of work here. So I think. I think there is, it's important to recognise exactly what you've said and uh, that there are pressures of work, just like all work, and try to uh, address them both within and outside the workplace. Yeah, which is really, really so important. Um, just before we, we, we finish, I wondered if I can ask you about um, some work you've been doing with Peter Gabriel. And what is that work? And are you able to share it with us? Now, I know I've interviewed a lot of people, so if you can't, don't share it. Uh, but um, I, I thought that he had an interest in some of the work that was being done at your unit. Yeah, so I think um, he has an interest in autism and in treatments of children with autism. And there has been some suggestion from the, the United States that using cord blood or cell therapy might affect or, and uh, allow children with autism to function more completely and more fully. And we have talked about whether we can set up similar work in Manchester uh, about using self-therapies for autism. I think it's actually paused at the moment while we see a little bit more out of the US results. Uh, medicine is becoming increasingly complicated and it is undoubtedly true that cells can deliver benefits sometimes which might be quite unexpected, including children with neurologic disease, including with autism. And I think that this is something to be watched. And what I talked about earlier, uh, which is about balancing risk, about trials and regulating them properly and making sure that you're asking appropriate questions and about infrastructure and making sure that you can offer something that might be effective within the right infrastructure. And I think that's why we're paused at the moment that I think I don't think the evidence is necessarily there from the US that this is a treatment that offers real benefit. And uh, given that they're doing the early fail, early phase regulated studies of safety and and then of efficacy of these treatments, I think it's right that we watch and see. But then if there is benefit, then I would like that benefit to be brought to the children of Manchester. But I'm not convinced yet that those data are there to support this approach. So I think it's a watch and see, but if if it's if it's good, then we should. Uh, and if there is benefit and without significant risk, then it may be something that we'll explore in the future. But everything should go at its right pace. And just because there is a need, there's no, there's undoubtedly a need for treatment of autism. And just because people have said it might be effective, and I don't think that it's right for us to rush into it. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, well, Rob, it's been really, really fascinating um, talking to you. Um, I or interviewing you about some of these areas. The, the regulations in your areas are vast. You know, I've been a barrister for 21 years in October uh, and they are very detailed. Uh, and so uh, you've got to understand them, uh, I suppose, uh, unless you've got a lawyer on the unit. I don't think you have. Uh, so the job seems to require a, an awful lot. And I just wondered then, it sounds to me as though you need a bigger unit, um, because as you alluded to earlier, you've outgrown the the unit there and, and it needs to be in a structure and safe and uh, safer environment. Um, but so two things, really. One, what's next? And secondly, what advice would you have for your younger self, the young Professor Wynn, who perhaps was a registrar starting out, you know, a few haematologists and is still one of the few hemoncologists, I suppose, if I can coin that term uh, in that way. Um, what advice would you give that Robert Wynn, who is now Professor Robert Wynn, uh, and what's next? Very good questions. Um... The first one about the advice to the younger. To, well, I hope that I give that advice to take the junior fellows and their futures seriously, because actually, as with every profession, I'm sure that uh, you can, uh, I'm not sure that anyone I often got good advice. I try to give time to the fellows so that they can think about their careers. I wouldn't in any, I'm very lucky where I am, and I look at medicine and the jobs that I could have ended up in across the piece and I couldn't imagine myself to be in a, a more rewarding and enjoyable specialty both because of the families the children their families the possibility of making a real difference to individual patients with the increasingly exciting science and good medicine requiring all of those skills we talked about multidisciplinary team working about communication about generating trust to make a difference in to the lives of individual patients and their families i can't imagine being uh, in a better area of medicine and so i guess to the younger people i would be encouraging them to pursue that dream not to be put off by what might be perceived the lack of jobs or more degrees and to do haematology and to gain experience both in the laboratory and in the clinic and hoping that there will be a growth in the subject such as I've seen. I think it's going to be very exciting in the next years. So, uh, new cell therapies, new gene therapies for new conditions and offering more for kids over the next years so that the rate of progress will be just as rapid over the next 20 years as it has been over the last i do worry about um i worry about the nhs and its capacity to do this i worry about it particularly here um i spend a lot of time um, um trying to uh, engage a wider audience about the work that we do and and I know that we have outgrown our current infrastructure. And that actually means that if we don't regrow it and extend it, then there will be children that we can't treat because we mustn't ever treat them in an environment or an infrastructure that is not quality assured. And that means those children going elsewhere, I think. Um, and that would be a sad thing for me. Obviously, I want to keep the transplant unit and the work going beyond me and as I look to retirement and I think succession planning and uh, is important so that the unit continues to thrive 
and it and embeds itself rem, or remains embedded in the very latest science and the very latest clinical medicine so that we can continue to offer the very best treatments to, to children with these uh, very serious illnesses and actually offer better treatments to more children. Um, so I think that's the challenge of our future and, um, and it needs a conversation outside the hospital and it's great to have spoken to you today about that. Absolutely. And I, I have been deliberately not political, but politics clearly plays a great part in uh, when one is talking about the North and the South. Uh, but uh, I would like to see the high standards of your unit and what you offer remain in the North. Um, at the very least, so the families don't have so far to travel and they can still continue managing their lives locally and however that uh, uh, comes. Um, well, Professor Wynn, thank you so much for coming on the Law and Guidance podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's been great and fascinating hearing about your work uh, and the laws and the guidance, the policies governing um, your work. Thank you so, so, so much. Thank uh, you for asking me. I look forward to um, having you back to talk some more. No, it would be a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking me. Thank you.